Our bodies are the instruments of either sin or holiness. Through them we express what is in our heart. By them the core of our thinking, feeling, desiring, and willing comes to expression. The holiness of the Christian comes from another world order for which non-Christians have no taste. Sanctification, then, is God setting us apart for Himself. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this morning we're going to be considering two questions. And it has to do with joy and identity. What brings you the most joy? And what can we learn about our identity by the things and the people or whatever it is that is in your life that brings you joy? What can we learn about our identity from joy? Recognize this image that they're going to put up? Some of you are going to recognize it instantly. But maybe this might help. Next image. All right. The image on the left-hand side is that of an ID card for a man who served in World War II in the Marines. We don't know anything about this man other than he was in the Marines during World War II from this ID card. He could have been a hero or as my Marine friend in a family worship Sunday kind of way came me a term that the Marines would use for another Marine that is a bad Marine, he would maybe be called a bag of donuts. So are you a hero or a bag of donuts? Now, consider the image on the right. Well, there it is. There's going to be one on the right. There were a couple of guys, right? And they have on hats that indicate that they served not only World War II, but they also served in Korea, and they also served in Vietnam. Now, by this picture, you don't know whether they were a hero or a bag of donuts either, do you? But this you do know. They want the world to know they're a Marine. They're proud of the fact that they're a Marine. They identify themselves to their very core being with being a Marine. They don't need an ID card. We don't even need them to have an ID card. Now, I had, there was an illustration I was going to use here, because really, I, I can't do it. I did not serve in the Marines. I failed the physical. Okay? So, but one of my, my Marine buddy, he was on the all-Marine golf team. Now, a lot of people do identify me as a golfer, and if I wore my Marine, he gave me an all-Marine golf shirt with the Marine insignia right here. I cannot wear it unless I'm with him. I just can't do it. Why? Because it's absurd. I don't want to, obsee, I don't want to be identified with being a Marine. I want, I mean, yes, I'm perfectly fine with being identified as a golfer. I was asking Sean Johnson, if I'm wearing a shirt like this, I possibly could be identified as a fish, someone who likes fishing. Not going to happen. All right, but that's because you can outwardly have certain things that say that you identify as something, but that doesn't mean that that's what you are inside. And some of you are already ahead of me, and you know where I'm going with this. J.I. Packer. I mentioned J.I. Packer when I was 
uh, here for Father's Day speaking to you. J.I. Packer, in an interview before his death, made the following observation about his... He went to church every week, three times a week. He was there as a child and well into his teens. And he confessed that at that time, it meant absolutely nothing to him. He was there, but it meant nothing. He said it was like a habit. It was like brushing your teeth. It was something you do. So the question that we have here is, is that, you know, when he was asked at that time, he would confess, are you a Christian? And he would say, yes. But inwardly, he just said it was nothing. It was a habit. It was something that he did. It wasn't something that he was. It was something that you do. It's not something that you want to be seen or thought of or be consumed with as an identity. So we're going to look at John chapter 15 in a minute and, and consider what we can learn of, about our identity from the things that bring us joy. But in addition to knowing God, there was another book that I mentioned the last time. It's called Rare Leadership. And one caveat that I have to that recommendation, by the way, is if you don't love science, heed the author's recommendation and skip the middle chapters. They will bore you to death. But the book itself is remarkable because the book examines what science has learned over the last two and a half decades that they've been able to uh, actually observe living brains. And it was written by a couple of Christian academics, which I might add is, a, is a, an increasingly rare phenomenon where someone actually affirms to be a believer and also a scientist. But in this case, it's a real treat because they detail how human beings differ from other animals. In other words, recent science discoveries cast doubt on humans having evolved. The more they learn, the more unlikely it is that humans could possibly have evolved. Well, that's not popular science these days. But beyond that, the science at this point clearly implies that the identity is part of the right side of your brain. Those of us who are kind of characterized as left-brainers because we're really detailed people kind of go, well, wait a minute. But we all wonder about how certain things we just are. Something things, there are just certain things that we identify with. Well, that's actually controlled and managed by the right side of your brain. And science is now affirming this. But once an identity is established, that identity and the person become inseparable. Like those two Marines that we pictured, earlier, there are examples of, of how the identity, their identity as a Marine was something that was just who they were, and anybody who saw them would make that connection. The, the, um, if that example doesn't ring for you, there's one that the, the author cites that is the, um, the phenomenon of goth, where you see teenagers that get enamored with goth and they begin to dress differently, act differently, hang with certain people, they get it, right? That's an identity element. Now, as fascinating as all that may be, um, the identity we really want to focus on this morning is our Christian identity. And if you're here or you're listening to me and you claim to be a Christian, you have a Christian identity. You have one. 
But the question is, is it merely a habit? Are you one in name only? Or is it what you want to be? As goth can turn out to be quite often, is it an obsession? Is it something that you focus on continually? It's, it's that important to you. You want the world to see you like those two Marines. You want to be identified as a Christian. Just want to be called one, you want to be identified as one. To help us a little bit more about that, we're going to look at some scripture right after I pray. Father, as Jeremy was preaching, literally, about our identity and the joy of being here and understanding who we are, as we sung in the songs, who we are in Christ, I pray, Lord, that the, the words that you've given me from chapter 15 will help everyone who hears this, my voice see what that can mean and how they can learn more about it by the things that give them joy. For I ask it all in your name. Amen. Joy. I found this quote. <clears throat> in the English Standard Version of the Bible, the words joy, rejoice, joyful appear a total of 430, a total of 430 times. Compare with happy or happiness, which appear only 10 times. Now, some consider the differences between joy and happiness a matter of semantics. That's possibly true. But if joy occurs 430 times and happiness only 10, it would appear, at least, that scripturally they're different. Now, as we read verses that are joy verses in the Bible, and by the way, in, in the app, might as well do the app commercial now, in the app, I have in, in the notes, there's a link. There are 40 different, 40, listen to me, New York, 40 different verses on joy that you can, can, there's a link there, you can hit on those and you can examine them for yourselves. But when we look at these joy verses, as I did in preparing, you realize that it's an ever-growing byproduct of an identity that's continually being transformed to be more like Jesus. So let me repeat that. If humans were created in God's image, then the more like Jesus, to be more like Jesus is to be more like the one human being who's ever existed in whom God was what? Well pleased. Right? Well pleased. Happiness, on the other hand, kind of comes and goes. It's usually measured by current circumstances. So joy isn't so easily measured. Joy's an awful lot like love, if you ask me, when it comes to trying to quantify it. It's not easily quantified. But this is one thing that you know. If somebody is in a moment of joy, they know it, and most all of you know it, right? The people who are around them tend to be, you tend to like to be around people who have joy because it's contagious. Those brain scientists I mentioned earlier mentioned another observation, that the thing that you crave most, that activity that brings you the most joy, is where you want to be the majority of the time. Now, that could be an individual, that could be a thing. But the scripture that would refer to where you want to be, where you long to be, there's a term for that in the scriptures, and it's called abiding. So if you would, look with me at John chapter 15. 
Jesus begins by declaring that he is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser in every branch, branches being those who are in Jesus. That do not bear fruit will be taken away, even those branches that bear fruit the Father prunes so that they'll bear more fruit. So how does that happen? Look at verse 4. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. Then look down at verse 9 and he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now back in July, your staff had our annual staff retreat. And the theme centered on John 15 and this matter of abiding. Branches thrive as they stay on the vine, in the vine, right? The second you rip the branch off the vine, what happens? Dies. It no longer will bear fruit. Jesus is the vine, and the love of God the Father is found in his Son, the only person to ever have lived exactly the way God desires of his creation. While Jesus was a human, he lived exactly that way. Now, if you have the time, I would recommend that you read all of chapter 15 and read it slowly and consider that simple sentence in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. But then down in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we're back down to it, right? We're back, we're back around to abiding and joy. And Jesus uses the word, one of the translations has it, that your joy may be complete. Complete joy. Sounds like a pretty good place to be. So what gives you your greatest joy? Is it your spouse, your kids, your job? Is it 4.30 on a Friday when you're looking forward to all the possibilities of the weekend? I mean, what brings you the most joy? So those brain scientists, as I noted, they said, you know, the things, the most powerful influence in your everyday, day-to-day decision-making, the choices that you make on what you're going to do, who you're going to spend time with, and what matters to you is whatever brings you the most joy. If your job, you hate your job because you don't get any joy out of your job, you see the connection, right? If you love what you do and it brings you great fulfillment, fulfillment, another, another kind of word to dis, that, that indicates that there's some joy, then it, it's not drudgery. People that you hang with, people that you're with, is it really, is it a labor to be with them or is it a joy to be with them? Jesus said very plainly, abide in me, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So when you make a difference in someone else's life, does that bring you joy? Now, Charles mentioned the poor in spirit. When you see somebody who's poor in spirit, is there, does it motivate you to try to make a difference in their life? If things start going contrary to the way that you you pray. You could, let's just say you're praying for it. You pray for a new job. You pray for a new spouse. You pray for, you pray for some condition in your life to change. And it doesn't go that way. Does that make you 
disappointed with God? Does that irritate you some? Is it, do, you, do you begin to believe, well, God's not for me? I mean, do you see it that way? Do you turn to God throughout your day, no matter what's going on in your life, whether it be good or bad? Scripture hasn't changed at all in 2,000 years. It's the same Bible. But the church sure has. The church large seems to be increasingly, it seems to increasingly bend with the, uh, the tyranny of the culture of the day, if you will. That becomes an issue whenever culture, particularly now in our times, when the culture of the day doesn't square up with Scripture. Right? It becomes a lot trickier to navigate that. But according to Scripture, it's a fallen world. And anything that the world's going to come up with is not going to be equal to what God has for us. So Scripture isn't the problem. And what I'm about to say may trouble some of you, and, 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 and I, I'm, I'm going to apologize right up front for that, but it, it has to be said. Problems occur whenever we allow, whether it be the church or ourselves personally, to allow the humanism that drives culture to sway the way we view Scripture. I have a statement that I use. I use a lot of statements over and over again. Sorry about that, but I never know when I'm going to be around somebody who hasn't heard one, so I use it again. But fish don't know they're in water. Right? We live in America in 2020. And all of the cultural things that are going on, all of this stuff in our divided country at the present time is influencing you in some way. It could be influencing you for good or bad or, you know, I'm just bailing. You know, it doesn't matter. It is impacting you. And it would be silly to deny that that influence has absolutely nothing to do with how we're going to read Scripture. But it does. Now, you think maybe, I, you, you think possibly, you, you, you might be with me, but you're not really sure. I'm going to give you an example. Oh, well, first I'm going to tell you a little bit about humanism. Um, if you're unfamiliar with humanism, if you Google the term, here's what you're going to find right at the top of the list. Humanism is a system of thought attaching primary importance to, on humans rather than God. That's an important statement right there. Humanists stretch the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasizing common human needs and seeking solely to rational explanations for solving all human problems. Now, time does not permit me to unpack all of that. But summing it up, I'm hopeful that we can all at least partially agree that humanism and Christianity see the world and mankind very differently. Scripture sees this very differently. Still not sure if you're with me? What is one of the most common complaints about Christianity or God by a by an unbeliever. It's how can a good God allow evil to exist is the one that I'm most familiar with. That's the one I get hammered with weekly. How, how could God, we prayed, we prayed, how could God let my loved one die? 
how come they're still sick? Well, if you place an emphasis on humans, that's, that's a natural thing to happen. Over the last couple of hundred years, in responding to questions like these, the response of the church and individuals has been increasingly more focused on the here and now aspect. The here and now. My job, my spouse, my this, my that. It's about me. Now, I'll make one last illustration on this and we'll move on. When... Asked a simple question. I met with Joshua this week, and I asked him for his permission to, to bring this up, and he said, sure. And I asked Jesus, Joshua one question. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. I mean, he said it just like that. Did he? I mean, we can't... I mean, we're Christians. We know that he came, and because he came, and he died, and he rose, we have... Salvation in him. We, that's, that's a true thing, right? But is that why he came? Look with me at John, uh, at John chapter 17. Jesus is speaking, speaking here, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Down to verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Boom, boom. Until we're living for the glory of the Father, we're going to struggle. Because we're attempting to build a Christian identity on things that bring us joy on the fallen premise that we're the most important thing. We're not the most important thing. It's not that we're not important. Do you see that? I mean, I'm not trying to, to be a downer here, but I'm trying to help all of us because for the vast majority of my Christian life, like many of you, this matter of my Christian identity and reconciling it to all the things that I wanted out of life had been a challenge. Jesus didn't have that challenge. He had exactly the same temptations that every single one of us have, and yet it wasn't a challenge for him. Why? Because he was living for the glory of his Father. And I got to tell you, not one of my priorities. I have not spent the majority of my 40 years as a Christian really focusing on, I really need to glorify God. I really need to do that. Jesus did that. I need to do that. Is that the focus? No. The focus has been just subtly and, and just a little bit where... Most of what we're doing when we're teaching people is getting them to focus on things that help them be better Christians, to be better Christians. Well, if you are a Christian, Jesus' primary focus in what he lived to do was to glorify his Father should be elevated on our priority list. I'm not saying to the exclusion of everything else. There, this is not just a one-note symphony here. This is a matter of priority. 
Do you get joy thinking about glorifying the Father and glorifying the Son? Now, if humanists say that what people are good and, and they're good is what matters, and Scripture in Romans 3.10 says exactly the opposite. What does Romans 3.10 say? Anybody? There is none good, no, not one. Right? There is none good. Humanism? Mankind is good. And the systems that come up from our culture are all predicated on people are good. They're just, you know, John, my Johnny's a good. You know, well, I'm sorry, Scripture says something different. They both can't be simultaneously truth. Now let's talk about truth for a minute. Came across these quotes as I was preparing for this morning. C.S. Lewis, if you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want joy, peace, and happiness, there's joy and happiness being two separate things, you need to stand near the one who can provide them. But my, my, my enemies, uh, a Greek philosopher, the next one is just brilliant. Truth does not become more true by virtue of the fact that the entire world agrees with it, nor less so even if the whole world disagrees. If not a single person agreed with Jesus, he's still truth. It's not a matter for public discourse and debate. This is not a, let's just get around and see if 51% of us will vote to say that Jesus is who he says he is. That's not the point. It is not a, human, a humanist-driven aspect to our identity. Our identity in Christ is Christ. Caring about the poor and lowly in spirit. Is that even a even on your radar. So let's get practical. Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth. That's John 18, 37. You remember when he was talking with Pilate. So what truth? The truth is that whoever keeps my commandments, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. If you're kind of not sure, well, there you have it, plain and simple. Do you love the commandments? We just came out of the summer in the Psalms. I mean, if there's one thing that keeps coming up over and over again as you're reading the Psalms, is that the Psalms love the commandments of the Lord. They love them. They look for them. They look to see, they see how they're different than everything around them, and they love it. And then whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. And then, as we read earlier in chapter 15, if you keep my commandments... Keep them, and you will abide then in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, verse 10 and 11, that your joy may be full. That's truth. So let's get practical. What hinders us from making progress in our faith walk? John mentioned it last week, and here it is for you again. We're going to show this thing over and over and over again. Why? because it's an indication of where you are in, the, in this exact moment in time. Because the interesting thing about our faith walk is, is it's, it's a very unusual thing for some people to actually get it day one. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of this. You have to spend time 
with, with your faith and with people of faith. And you have to spend time in, in God's Word. And you have to hear and study and learn the things to... Uh, there's, there's another quote that I heard uh, a couple of years ago, that illiteracy in the 21st century is no longer the inability to read and write. Illiteracy in the 21st century is the inability to unlearn and relearn. Because we have so much coming at us, remember the old fish and water bit, you have made some determinations that you don't even realize that you have because you have to, white, you have to block out so much white noise in your life that you just decide certain things are so. You just have to in order to get on with life. But what happens if one of those things that you heard isn't doesn't square with Scripture. Which one wins? What do you do when those two things butt heads? Do you try to bend Scripture to kind of fit what you want? Or do you allow Scripture and what God has revealed in His Son to help you see what God wants for you, not necessarily from you? I mean, that's, the big, that's another one of the big gripes, right, about giving. By the way, there is an updated graphic, and, and you should all know that keep doing what you're doing. God bless us. We're, you know, we're, still do, we're still tracking well. But th that whole monetary side of things, that's one thing that kind of comes up in Christianity. Well, you guys just want money. Well, there's a reason. Charles pointed it out. It's, that, it's so that we can impact people's lives with the truth of the gospel that we have the good news, and that good news is a person. It's not a gig. It's not a thing that you can get to do. It's what you become. It's what you are. You are in Christ. And when you have a conflict between what the world is singing and the twinkly, sparkly stuff that's over here and what Scripture says, if you're a believer and if you believe what Jesus said was so, then that will take priority. So we're going to wrap this up. John has started this, this, this idea that he wants to have the practical bits going into the week, and I love it. I think it's a great idea. You've got to speak to the head, you've got to speak to the heart, and you've got to speak to the hands. All right? You're going to do the things that you do, the things that you think, the things that you feel, and the things that you're going to get about. It's going to come as no shock to any of you that the head was it, let's see now, it was... It was Jefferson Airplane in 1967. The song was White, White Rabbit. And it, the claim was, like the good book says, feed your head. Well, the good book doesn't say it, but it's really a good idea. Right? You need to feed your head. How do you do that? Well, you know what I'm going to tell you. you got to get into reading Scripture every single day. And... The easiest way I know to get into that, I shared this with Michael five years ago, you know, is you start with Proverbs. Proverbs are really practical truths in God's Word. They're little couplets. A handful of them make up a, a chapter. The average chapter is 30 verses. I don't care how slow you read. That's not 10 minutes, right? And if you do, like the, my Father's Day sermon talked to me and said, well, you better add a psalm because you're missing something. So you can add another psalm with the exclusion, yes, Charles, with the exclusion of 119, which is the longest chapter in your Bible, 175 verses. Don't include that one. But it's, break that one up into several, 
okay? Because the average psalm is really only about 10, 10 verses. So read there. You don't want to get into the too heady stuff? Start there. Sherry wondered the following thing out loud, and I think it bears mentioning. She said, how much impact would a father sitting down and reading Scripture every day with their children make 20 years from now? It's an interesting thought. And just so I don't come across as gender-biased, a mama can sit down and read the Scripture with their children. It's I would say in, in the current days, fewer and fewer fathers are doing it. We're busier and busier. No excuse. There's some time. There's some time. Find it. Ten minutes. You can squeeze it in. Think about what kind of an impact that'll make on them when you send them off to university and they're going to get hammered for believing anything that's found in the Bible. So try a proverb a day. They've got the links in the app. Let's talk about the heart. Ultimately, the body of Christ is defined by the actions and the routines guided by the Spirit. We need to learn how to crave and love what God made us for. Crave and love glorifying Him. That's hard for most of us. We're busy glorifying us. Now, you may not think of it that way, but if you're putting you first, that's who you're glorifying. And the Holy Spirit is the only person in existence that can guide you into transforming your life to be more like Jesus. That's worth repeating. Because churches, well-intentioned as it may be, want to have a program or a guidebook or a, a, a certain kind of fellowship that are guided to have us be more like Jesus. Good things. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is that the Holy Spirit is the only person in existence that can ultimately really, truly change your heart. The rest of it is window dressing. It's trying. Don't you try. All the work that is done, that's needed to be done, was done by Jesus on the cross, and the Holy Spirit is the comforter and the helper to guide us to get there. That's a really, really, really important thing, and I can't emphasize it enough. And you need, here's the phenomenon about that. I don't know why God set it up this way, but he did. Okay? The Holy Spirit will not do that unless you ask him. You have to ask. This is the contradiction. It's, it goes contrary to our humanness, right? We feel like, you know, you got to want it. Well, here's, a, here's the want. Ask the Holy Spirit. Have the humility that Charles talked about. Have the humility, like his mama, to say, I, it, there's no, by the way, there's no secret formula. You don't have to pray a certain kind of prayer. That's not it. It's simply this. Holy Spirit, help me be like more like Jesus today. Amen. You know the key part of that I just said? Every day. Can't be a one and done. You've got to do it every day. And then the Holy Spirit has been invited. And trust me, you make that invitation, things will change. They certainly have in my life. And last, 
Join a K group. Well, you knew I was going to get here too. Okay? It's the, it's the practical bit du jour. Right? It's we've got K groups that are restarting and community and fellowship with other believers should be a part of your identity like those two Marines. Right? Those two Marines, we don't even know if they knew one another before that picture was shot. For all we know, they could have said, hey, man, I got the same hat. Come on over here. Take a selfie. Right? Why? Because they want to be associated with one another. Do you want to be associated with fellow Christians? Do you, does that bring you joy? Your identity, your Christian identity, is there joy found in it? That's my prayer for you. Can others tell that being identified with Jesus and glorifying the Father brings you joy? That's what I'm shooting for. I fail at it every day to a certain degree. Get up the next day and take another whack at it. <laughs> and that's what each of us can do to have the kind of energy and joy that Jeremy expressed because of the joy that being in Christ can bring. Let's pray. Father, I hope that I did this passage justice and that the connection between the things that bring us joy and where we choose to abide can be guided by the, the, the primary aspect of abiding in Christ and abiding in your love and with your approval. And the only way that's possible is spending time with you and, and in Christ and with others who share the same thoughts with respect to what this life is about. I mentioned the Marines and, and, their, and their cry, Semper Fi, always faithful. May we be found faithful. That just doesn't usually come day one. It comes from every single day making a choice to thank you and to invite you to help guide our day. For I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.